Hello, my name is Dr. Jamar Tisby, and welcome to Those Meddling Kids Unmasking the Anti-CRT Crusade in Christian Higher Ed. Y'all remember Scooby-Doo? I don't know if anybody in the, the youngest generation <laughs> remembers Scooby-Doo, Scooby but there, there was always this caper. There was this mystery, right? And then at the end, the, the, the kids would unmask the real villain, right? It was this monster or whatever, but then they'd unmask the real villain. And I would have got away with it if it wasn't for those meddling kids. Well, guess what? Those meddling kids have the audacity, the unmitigated gall to want to ensure racial progress and to think that Christian institutes of higher education should help promote that. Uh, but many administrators, trustees, donors, alumni are pushing back against those efforts. And I have a feeling they're shaking their fists at those meddling kids. Well, we're here today with Dr. Christina Edmondson, who is going to help us understand institutional change and anti-racism in higher education. Welcome to those meddling kids, Dr. Christina. Thank you so much. I, mean, I, I, I definitely get your reference. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, but, they, but, but, but we have something called the Google. And so if you are uncertain go. about that reference, you can always go to... <laughs> the uh, not always reliable, but useful Google. <laughs> yes, I appreciate you saying that and helpful context there. So I'm very glad to say that uh, we're friends, we're colleagues, I've associated with you a lot, and it's my honor and privilege to do so. For those of us who don't know you or aren't as familiar, tell us a little bit about your educational background and training, as well as your background in higher education. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. And I'm really grateful to be a part of this esteemed group of people that will be teaching uh, to, uh, to, to these students. Um, and so my name is Dr. Christina Edmondson. My uh, academic background is largely in the social sciences. And so, um, so a, a bachelor's degree from Hampton University HBCU in Virginia in sociology, emphasis in race, class, and gender, and then a master's of science degree from the University of Rochester, up, upstate New York, <laughs> cold part of the country, in family systems uh, with kind of a biopsychological focus. Um, and so those that's kind of in my my background too to think about how things are kind of interconnected uh, with the body with society with our mind etc and, and and really focus on the family unit and culture and then a phd in counseling psychology from tennessee state university located in nashville in um, counseling psych and my focus is in the area of trauma so every kind of trauma you can think of but in the most recent years um spiritual abuse uh racial trauma cultural trauma etc so that is exactly why I thought you'd be perfect to have on this conversation. You've also worked in Christian higher yeah. ed. Is that right? I have. I have. So I've, I've had the pleasure of working in some different higher education settings, whether it's historically black colleges, community colleges, um, large research institutions, but a pretty significant stretch of time um, in Christian higher education at Calvin, now Calvin University, located in West Michigan. Thank you for that background and context. I just wanted folks to know why you're so great for this conversation. We're going to dive right in here. Um, what do you think is important for Christian college students to know 
about critical race theory. I know you're not necessarily an expert or trained in it, but given this whole anti-CRT crusade, what do you think is important for folks to know about it? So what I would say to students is that critical race theory is a, it's a legal theory that um, was developed to address a problem, <laughs> which is which is how a lot of like theories or res responses come to be. There's an issue, right? And largely the issue that critical race theorists um, were were addressing uh, was was that the civil rights movement did not rectify in and of itself because of ingrained uh, legislative resistance um, the issues of racism that are in place in the United States, and that. Uh, there would still need to be intentional work done, uh, both conceptually to understand that, right, but practically done uh, in, in, a legal, uh, in a legal manner to be able to roll back to dismantle um, racism in our, in our policies and in our practices. And so they, uh, critical race theorists, are addressing an issue that is very real. There, there are many ways for people to approach the um, the need to address an issue. This is what that particular field has brought to bear uh, as experts in the law <laughs> um, and experts in the Constitution of the United States. And so I try to remind people that we need to respect and understand different disciplines. It's something that I try to emphasize with, with students is that every discipline has its own presuppositions. It has its own interests, um, its own primary sources, so to speak. And when we critique um, a theory or a philosophy, we want to make sure that we understand it within the context of the discipline that it represents first and foremost. And this, this lives squarely, although it has implications outside of it, in the legal studies discipline. Thank you for that. Now, you still keep tabs on Christian higher ed. You're still very involved in a lot of ways. How have you seen the anti-critical race theory crusade, as I'm calling it, show up in Christian colleges and universities? What, what does it look like? Well, one of the things that we know when we are looking at um, the anti-CRT movement, uh, which, which is an intentional organized movement, uh, is that one of the aims and goals of that, move, of that movement is to capture anything related to racial equity and, and the realities of American racial history to put all that underneath this kind of boogeyman title of critical race theory, <laughs> this kind of rebranding of it, right? Um, and so that's the first thing that I would want people to be attentive to is that there, there is indeed a strategy at play. Um, and, and the truth is uh, all educators, um, you know, higher ed has an agenda. People talk about, you know, do you have an agenda? Absolutely. Every instructor that you've ever had has an agenda. <laughs> and I think the very, the very best ones will tell you the first day of class. If I'm teaching, if I'm teaching a course on, um, on, on issues of equity um, and racial history, um, and I tell people the first day, particularly in a Christian college setting, my, my agenda is that we would learn what is true and we would do what is right. <laughs> so I do have an I do have an agenda, and every instructor does, every institution does, um, and so the anti-critical race theory movement certainly has an agenda. And one of the things that they have been able to do really well uh, through uh, their means of knowledge, uh, knowledge production doesn't mean that it's real, but knowledge production, like the media, is to um, 
really uh, carefully create this association that everything related to racial equity, racial history, is this boogeyman known as CRT. Um, and so it's important for people to recognize that and um, and to think about, you know, if I quote Frederick Douglass for people right now, I might get a critic that says, that's critical race theory. <laughs> and I'm quoting Douglass. If I quote Tubman, if I, if I quote, uh, you know, if I quote, you know, you know, Ida B. Wells, you know, if I, people are like, that's critical race theory. We're not even talking about the same time period, right? right? Although I would say the roots of critical race theory, as we know it, hold hands with the historic abolitionist movement, which I would say Christians, um, Christians who read the Bible and believe uh, the prophet's word in Micah about doing justice should see themselves in the lineage of the Christian abolitionists of the United States. I certainly yeah. do. I hope wow. to be in that number. Um, and so that is actually a, a, um, a similarity, whether you get with all the tenets of CRT or not, that I would think that Christians who are faithful in their biblical study um, would agree with. You know, I love the historical references and connections. I'm so glad you say that, that we um, are trying to hold ourselves in the tradition of those who are doing justice, including working for abolition and nowadays anti-racism. So with that being said, with, you know, that, that there is this stream historically and, and even in Christian theology of these sorts of justice efforts, why does it seem to you like this anti-CRT crusade has made such inroads in Christian institutions? I mean, shouldn't it be the case that these institutions are, are, are the most protected against these sort of racially regressive kinds of things happening? Why are we finding it in these institutions in particular? So I, so I think there are a variety of reasons, one of, one of which is that we have to be honest about the, about the catalyst or the inspiration for the, the creation of our particular institution. And we have to do some digging about whether or not the institution itself exists, not solely, but in part related to kind of uh, racial homogeneity, right? So in other words, uh, is, is the roots of your institution and it's going to be a long agenda about what it's about, but does one of those agenda items include um, a kind of a resistance to integration? <laughs> so if, if that's kind of built into your institutional uh, you know, heritage or lineage, well, it would make a whole lot of sense, even if you don't name that out loud, that it would have an attraction, implicitly be attracted to, um, to a resistance to racial equity, even while propagating... Um, kind of colorblind philosophies, right? Which aren't helpful at the end of the day. But even while saying we're open to everyone, you still want to examine the history because it's hard for us to outrun the history of our roots, right? <laughs> even if we want to. So I would say that's one thing that needs to happen. The second thing is that the um, academic institutions contain people with, rightfully so, a whole host of philosophical and political thoughts and convictions. And uh, there are people who help to fund <laughs> the efforts of the institutions, their, their existence, and, you know, much pay, much say. And people mm -hmm. who you may have, you may never meet, right? So board members, for example, um, uh, prominent alum that, again, you may not know who they are as a, as a student or maybe even a faculty person, but they can have a great deal of say and influence uh, through their money, and which is a means of influence, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something to, to also to, to consider as well. And if those individuals' interests 
are in maintaining a particular view of America, the world, right? Uh, if, if they um, find it alarming to their business interests or maybe even to their sense of identity that people pr- talk about America as a country that is deeply rooted um, in um, you know, racial stratification from, from its inception, <laughs> from its inception. Yeah. Why is America wealthy? Well, racial stratification, y'all. And that, that you know, to, saying that out loud, that's not, to me, that's not a particularly provocative thought if you just, you read primary sources, which I would uh, recommend to all students, like just read the founders, read <laughs> the, the, the authors, uh, read the Confederate generals, just, just read people in their own words. Um, but I think if you have an interest in not embracing or dealing with or reckoning with that reality, that history, then you can certainly use your money in order to manage uh, what is seen um, as information that everyone needs to learn and what is suppressed. So you're saying that that um, the, the roots have a bearing on the fruits, that Indeed. how an organization is. <laughs> Yeah. has a has a big bearing on how it approaches issues of racial justice. And the reality is for many of our institutions of Christian Christian higher education, at best, they weren't thinking about race, uh, but oftentimes they were even worse, actively opposed to um, racial integration or or any sort of meaningful or substantive racial progress. So I would advise uh, students, one of the sources, go back and look at school newspapers. A lot of times colleges and universities will have an archive of the school newspapers, look around um, at significant events like the March on Washington or Selma or uh, the sit-ins and see what people at your school were saying about those incidents and, and around that time. And of course, there's all kinds of events and all kinds of decades that you can look into, but that would be one way to check into your own institution. Um you wrote a book, you co-wrote a book called Faithful Anti-Racism. I had the pleasure and honor of endorsing that book, and I highly recommend it for people. It, it, it's an interesting juxtaposition, faithful anti-racism. And in the context of this conversation, can there be, can, can Christian faith and critical race theory coexist? It's a loaded question, but you know that a lot of the folks are, who are anti-CRT are saying it is anti-Christian, it is anti-gospel. What would you say to those folks? Interesting. You know, so um, I had the opportunity to present recently at the at, at the Critical Race Theory Summer School, uh, <laughs> along with a, a small group of um, we, they, ha- they have different tracks that are set up under different you know disciplines, but under kind of the faith, the keeping the faith track. So these are people who you know affirm the Christian faith, <laughs> the historic Christian faith passed down by the apostles kind mm. of language, and. Um, but but weren't weren't there to necessarily evangelize anybody, but we were there to teach about within our kind of subject areas. And I would say that um, the major the major tenets, the building blocks of critical race theory, its assumptions about racism kind of being set in motion, baked in into the American narrative. I, I, I don't see how that is out of step with uh, historic Orthodox Christianity. It is absolutely out of step with white Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. And so what I would say to people is that, um, that, that I do believe that Christians 
should be should be discerning every theory, every concept, like capitalism and socialism. Like we should be discerning all of these things, right? Um, but but I do think that people who are uh, Christian nationalists are going to have a real issue with critical race theory just from just just from that particular tenet is is going to strike an offensive chord for them. Um, and, and I and I'm not a Christian nationalist. So for me, so for me, um, I can I can stand in full agreement with those types of concepts. I absolutely believe that. And that also lines up with my belief system about sin and about um, the fact that sin is inherently systemic. Um, that we don't have like individual pet sins. There, there are national, global, cosmic implications for the sin of even one human as an Orthodox Christian who actually holds to the creation narrative as well, right? So th- those things hold can hold hands for me. Um, I, but with that being said, I would invite people to, to learn from our neighbors who are critical race theorists, because that's what they are, and mm. to read them in their words and if you're an undergrad student and you're listening to this, I don't know, you might be inspired to go to law school. We could sure use you <laughs> after you do that bit of work. Um, but but I, I do think we need to respect and we need to hear people uh, in their own discipline. They are our neighbors. And so my Christian convictions would tell me that before I make a slanderous assumption about critical race theories, I've got to hear them. And and I, I'm all, I've always been fascinated about Derek Bell, who's considered the father of critical race theory. He has the story that he tells about... Um, going into the, the the white segregated Presbyterian church um, in mm-hmm. in his in his you know the community where he was stationed at a, as a fairly young man in the military, um, and really being uh, pushed out, being ostracized mm-hmm. in many ways, being disrespected. That story kind of echoes through history of a similar experience that Frederick Douglass also had, um, and so uh, I, I I lift that up to say that there are. There, there are believers, and I do believe that Derek Bell would have described himself that way. Um, mm. that, Interesting fact. That, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. right. That um, bring to bear their faith convictions, but also the spiritual and religious trauma that they have experienced that wow. produces an insight that helps them to think critically about, for example, in this case, uh, the American racial narrative. That's actually a gift to us. And uh, an inspiration, even if we don't agree with every tenet or every detail or every application, critical race theorists are just as varied as members of a political party. In the mm. same way that there are Republicans, that there are different types of Republicans under that banner, there are different types of Democrats or, or, or independents, for example, there are different types of, of critical race theorists. And so we just want to be fair and honorable in the way that we learn and the way we talk about other people. I appreciate your talk about systems and how um, actions can manifest themselves through through policies, because now we want to talk about institutions. So when we look at these anti-CRT efforts in Christian colleges and universities, it can see overwhelming, like, like change isn't even realistic <laughs> or possible. I mean, it's hard enough to change one person's mind. Now we're talking about changing an institution. So, so just... In, in general, why are institutions so resistant to or hard to change? 
Yeah. So uh, was it a uh, uh, the philosopher um, Reinhold Niebuhr uh, talks about that systems are inherently selfish and self-protected and protective. Um, and I, I, I think that's a good point <laughs> to make. Um, think about a system as having a personality. That personality mm-hmm. will be to maintain itself. Um, I, I also think uh, that one of the things that is, is really important to consider is that institutions might be, you know, uh, kind of these libraries of knowledge and information doesn't necessarily mean that it's really good at lifting up a mirror to do self-knowledge, <laughs> to do self-evaluation, <laughs> right? Oftentimes institutions and even academics are really good at talking out, but not talking about their the inward realities, right? So you can be smart and not self-aware. And I think likewise, institutions can function that way as well. There's also a difference between just knowledge, philosophy, our practices, and actually the collection of data that that helps us to really understand um, our patterns and our practices and who's being hired in and who's and who is not being hired in, right? Um, and so the question that I usually ask organizations, particularly if there's a, a lot of racial homogeneity or whatever type of homogeneity, is I ask them how they maintain the homogeneity that they have. Typically, mm-hmm. when I get called in, it's this idea of like we want we want to be open and welcome to everyone, right? And then I ask them, well, how do you how did you keep it so white, for example? Wow, because because that's not <laughs> that's not natural in a multicultural society and world. So so there's something that's taking place, right? So the neighborhoods in America look the way they look because of redlining, for example, and the legacy and lineage of such, right? Um, and likewise, there are ways in which organizations and systems and universities maintain homogeneity through their yeses and through their noes. And what I encourage people is to peel that back, not to not to be so stuck in shame, but to actually to do their due diligence in the efforts of change. If you don't do that, you're going to be still. You're not going to move forward. You're not going to make changes. And then also this is the nature of the way in which um, academic institutions are set up. They're just, they are, uh, they're, the average institution is really complicated in terms of its governing systems, in terms of um, its tenure processes, in terms of its board of trustees and what it means to be on there and what kind of affiliations you might have to have, et cetera. Christian institutions have a whole additional layer Added, added to that in many instances. And so change is not as simple within the organization as just having a good idea and, 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 and calling for a vote, right? Um, one of the things I often remind people is that when we're talking about change in general, we have people who are kind of internal change agents and we have external agitators. And mm. I think that those two roles, those two identities, the language that I use to describe it, are really important, that they're almost kind of synergistic and symbiotic. You need both of those. Sometimes for an organization to change or an academic institution, you have to have external agitators who are not controlled or beholden to the university because they don't pay their bills and they're not afraid of not getting tenure to be able to push. In a lot of cases, that could be an alum. Alum Mm -hmm. are in the position to do that, right? Um, And then you also need internal change agents, people who are within the organization, who understand it from the inside out, who, who maybe even genuinely love it, who are committed to it and have a hope for it to be more than what it is at the moment. They see its potential. And so they tend to work slower and more thoughtfully they might even be because they might even look like um, they're being too much of a team player <laughs> to the external to the external agitator. But both of those roles are very, very critical 
and helping change to, to take place and for the organization, for the university to feel pressure from within, pressure and support within, but agitation from without in order for change to take place. Oof, it's such a, a, a critical um, articulation of this uh, dynamic interplay between the internal and the external. So let's think about students. Um, I imagine they would be, uh, while they're in the school, internal uh, change agents, but they're students. So, so on the one hand, if an institution is truly student-centered, they should have the most influence. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, <laughs> that's often not the case for a variety of reasons, including the fact that students have other things to do. But also (laughs) don't have the money and the institutional power. So if I'm a student at these Christian um, institutes of higher education, how can I be an internal change agent for racial justice? Yeah, yeah. So if 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 the student is is a person of faith, that the student is a Christian, one of the first things I would tell them to do is uh, to to not take for granted for granted the basic elements of the Christian faith and Christian health, which includes prayer. <laughs> so praying, praying for wisdom, mm. praying for patience, mm. praying for discernment, the capacity to see things that maybe uh, to have your eyes open, to be able to see things well, and to and to have favor. We can actually pray for favor in difficult <laughs> situations and also to know if it's my season to stay or my season to go. Students have a choice yeah. um, about where they stay and, 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 where, and where they go, for example. So that's important to know. The other thing I, that I would often uh, joke with students and say and, um, is that, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. had finished multiple degrees before he um, <laughs> participated in and led his first boycott. Good point. <laughs> now, that was my way of saying, like, make sure you pass your classes. <laughs> make sure you pass your classes, okay? Get your education. Exactly. And the truth is that the, um, it, it, with that being said, exercising your agency to stand for what is right and what is just is also a part of your educational process. It's a part, also a part of your identi- identity formation mm. process, which is also important to the life and experience of a college student. So we don't have to pit those against each other, but I just want to make sure that as students are pushing back and, and doing what needs to be done within the institution, that they don't sell themselves short and they don't walk away in debt without a degree and, and dealing with an institution that still has not made any changes, that's tried to kind of wear them out because it's just four years. <laughs> institutions sometimes think that way, like it's just four years of this of this batch of students complaining, and then there'll be a whole nother group that will come on, right? Yeah. Um, and so I want to make sure that students um, get what they came for. Uh, and if that is a degree, if that is a particular experience, I want them to be able to, to get that. Um, so those are some of the things that I would, would lift up for students. And obviously, we can't do any of the work that we do alone. We are not in a vacuum. Uh, this is an opportunity to join arms with uh, others, other students um, in learning how to work together and learning how to build. And my hope and my prayer is that you change that institution. And by the way, your very presence is a change to that institution. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you don't even if it doesn't change in the way that you want, in the time that you are there, you will have changed yourself. You would have ga- gained these types of skills for advocacy, 
uh, for um, advancement of for those multicultural democracy, which is really important to me. Um, you you would have learned how to use your voice as a believer to be salt and light in wherever wherever you end up in some really thoughtful, practical ways. So I don't want students to um, underestimate the power of their influence, but also not to miss the fact that even if they don't see change the way they want to see it right now, because we're all frustrated in that regard, trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, this experience is sowing something in you that is going to be valuable now and for the future. That's so good. Taking that longer view than just that three, four, five years at one institution. What about parents and alumni? Anything that uh, constituents who are related to the institution but may not be enrolled there can do? Yeah, oh, parents and alumni, absolutely. Um, so so alum are able to really leverage uh, their, um, their profession or their influence wherever they are right now. They're, they're able to leverage that in some strategic ways and draw attention to the institution or injustices or concerns that they have about it, right? Um, whether that's um, through their social media platform, letter writing, through positioning themselves to be members of the board of trustees, for example, uh, being able to speak on campus and maybe saying some things that a, a, a faculty member who is seeking tenure does not feel like they can say or a student doesn't feel like they can say. So they can use their voice in that way. Uh, certainly parents, you know, parents have every right to ask questions about overall well-being and safety. And safety is broader than just our physical safety, which is really important, but also our emotional and spiritual safety within an institution. So a parent has every right to ask those types of questions and not just ask the question, um, request to see the evidences of the health of that university. Mm. So I want to know um, how many people of color apply to work here, for example. I want to know more about how many students of color, specifically uh, Latino, Latina students that that start here and finish. I want to know, do they switch through majors? What majors are most likely to graduate students of this particular demographic profile? And is there an issue, for example, in the engineering program? Because I'm noticing that this group starts there, but then they end up here. Tell me what you have learned about that. Help me to understand. Now, not only can parents and alum ask that question, students can ask that question. Um, I've worked at institutions and I've noticed the ways in which some students, obviously, a lot of us pick majors and we realize this is not the major for me. And that's legit, right? That's a part of the process. But if we start seeing large patterns of particular populations of students not being able to persist in certain uh, departments, that makes me start asking questions about that department and what signals are being sent and what they have done to remediate their issue and being able to attract and to serve well uh, all students in the institution through that particular program. All that to say is that there's that they have the ability to ask many, many questions and they have the right to get those uh, answers. And asking good questions is a service to a healthy organization. Now, one that's like a cult and that wants to hide, <laughs> they hate questions, but any organization or, that is interested in actually growing in transparency, they welcome well-meaning, uh, tough questions. Dr. Christina, that's so helpful and, and practical. And I love how questions can actually be 
um, an entrance into not only deeper discussions, but if folks are asking, well, what can I do? What should I do? Starting with those questions is probably a good way to lead you down a path toward more specific and concrete actions because you have to have that sort of diagnostic about where the institution is, how the institution's doing in order to know what direction to go. So I just give that as a word of encouragement to our viewers and our listeners that even if you don't know the, the actual action step right now, begin with questions and let those questions lead you to some more actions. This has been a phenomenal conversation, and I'm sure some people want to continue it with you in particular. Tell us about some of your latest work and also how people can keep up with you. Absolutely. And th thanks so much, uh, Dr. Tisby, for having me here today. Um, yeah, so I, I had the privilege in 2022 this year to be able to uh, partner on two book projects. Uh, one um, that... Uh, Dr. Tisby just mentioned Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. Um, my friend and colleague and I wrote that together, Chad Brennan. Um, and that book, I think, is um, a real opportunity to put in conversation scripture, theology, history. We try to do our best, uh, Dr. Tisby, to do a little history in that book. Um, but but social science and qualitative and quantitative research, as well as practical ways to, to do the work of dismantling racist structures um, because we are Christians, because we love Jesus. And most more importantly, Jesus sees us and is in this with us. Um, and so that's that's one, one project that also comes with a, a partnership with Seminary Now. So we have an entire course that people yeah. can, can utilize and participate in. Uh, students, I give it a go, uh, as, as well as members of churches or organizations may find an interest in that as well. Um, I also have another book project along with um, friends and colleagues at Truth Table Podcast, which I still uh, help to serve as a co-host. Uh, Truth Table is a podcast built by and for Black women. Um, and we, we talk shop about all the things, politics, pop culture, faith, race, family, you name it. Um, and our book is Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. In addition to that, those two books are out there. They're in the world. Once you've written them, here they are, people. Um, <laughs> I, I, I continue to work with a number of organizations, largely behind the scenes, working on organizational health, um, equity, and ethics, um, and anti-racism work. And so um, that is, that's what my time uh, looks like right now. And um, yeah, eager to see what God has for me next. Thank you so much for joining us. This information, I am sure, is going to help free some people and maybe even some institutions moving further on that path of racial justice. <laughs> yes. Thanks again, Dr. C. We'll see you later. Thank you.